Fun fact, I was the first Lululemon ambassador here in the state of Arizona back in like circa 2005, 2006. How cool is this then that Lulu is back in your life again? Yeah, it's, it's amazing because guys, I'm so excited to tell you about this Lululemon 10K tour. It's coming to Scottsdale and we're going to be running it with you. Wait. Wait, wait. I thought we were just promoting the 10K. I don't know that I'm ready to run this thing, bro. Relax, bro. Relax. You and everybody listening totally has this because new for 2023 is this 10K tour training program, which you can use, Matthew, and I can use it, and anybody else, which will be hosted on the Lululemon Studio app. The date is November 12th and the course is unreal. Now, if you can't join us, you can participate virtually wherever you live. Plus, your participation will activate a donation to the National Alliance for Mental Illness. Visit lululemon10ktour.com to sign up today. It's, it's a mouthful. Lululemon 10, then the letter K, tour. Dot com to sign up today. Yeah, go sign up now, either virtually or in person, and you can run with us November 12th for the Lululemon 10K Tour in Scottsdale, guys. You'll get a Lululemon participant shirt, a finisher medal, an exclusive 10K training program, and all of the amazing pre- and post-race amenities, including yoga, meditation, even a post-race treat. Go to Lululemon. 10ktour.com. That's Lululemon, the number 1010ktour.com to sign up right now with a group of friends. This episode of the I Needed That podcast is sponsored by BetterHelp and NeuroGum and Mints, buddy. I've been here for some friends, Chris. Everybody's on the NeuroGum and Mints kick. They dig it. <laughs> I know. You think it's, as long as they just try it, we know they're going to like it. Yeah. So they're, they're throwing a good party. <laughs> Wait, I don't think you can explain enough this little caffeine hack that you have and the reason that I think it's such a neat thing for people to try yeah, well, we were just talking about it again this, this morning. morning. I know. And th- th- here's here's the best part about it is when you understand how your body is going to adapt to any kind of formula, any kind of caffeine and theanine, etc. Um, you, you always get that amazing feeling at first for the first few weeks, and then it starts to taper off a little bit. And that's it's funny because I, I kind of I have a rotation of between like coffee and an energy drink powder. And then as soon as you said, hey, hey, try one of these neuro mints, it was great because I got that pick me up. Like, like when I had a cup of coffee for the very first time. Well, throw down right now. We've got a link waiting for you inside the show notes to link to NeuroGum and Mints. Uh, also, let's have uh, just a quick discussion about BetterHelp because we're getting some great feedback on there too. You and I both experienced therapy. We both have done talk therapy. We've both done other modalities. Um, give, me, give me one of your biggest takeaways from talk therapy, man. It's something that you, you use even to this day. Well, you know, the one thing having literally just spoken with my therapist a week and a half ago, going through my own things. Um, we have the answers inside, but we need that connection with someone else to help us find them. And that's, I've been doing therapy for seven plus years and every single therapist, they, they just know how to ask the right questions to help us find the answers inside of us. But the thing is I've, in 45 years of my life, I've, I haven't been able to find it myself. It's always been in the interaction, the connection with another human who also kind of can understand it because they're, they're not in the, they're not in the forest, right? They're, they're not stuck in it. So they can step outside. They can see where my mind might be going, ask a couple questions and give me that aha moment. And it's, it has changed my life significantly. How about yourself? Well, it's the truth, man. I just think that's what it is. They ask you the question so you can find the answers yourself. That's it. Because we all know we're never going to change anything about ourselves until we're ready to change. Bingo. And we're not going to ever be ready to change until we see it in ourselves. Oh, so yeah. if you want to save 10% on your first month at BetterHelp, we've got a link uh, set up for you guys in the show notes. You can just head on over to uh, the I Needed That podcast, open up any one of our show notes and the links there at the bottom for both NeuroGum and Mints and BetterHelp. Should we do a podcast? Well, absolutely. Let's Let's go. go. I needed that. I'm down for that. I think that's cool. Well, Chris's podcast 
co-host I Needed That, co-hosted by Matthew Blades, is available on all streaming platforms, everybody. Again, we're talking with Rachel from season five of my show. We tend to do that a lot with a ton of things, is like try to pass on ownership. You know, I'm a confident, badass woman. That's what I say to myself. I just stopped feeling like you anymore. I remember looking at myself in the mirror and being like, who is this chick? I am MIA, and I, I need to get myself back. I need friend welcome to this is episode number 45 of the i needed that podcast how are you chris paul i'm doing great my friend i got that's a podcast for every year of my age now oh yeah 45 man. 45, 45 years old. when is your birthday march we got time okay yeah yeah you, so you'll be you will be 45 coming up no i'll be 46 46 coming closer to 50 oh my gosh do you want to know who turns 50 pretty damn quick you yeah i wait when, when's your birthday Next week. Oh, my God, that's right. <laughs> yeah, the 18th. It is. I knew that. Because I'm real close with Rachel. Holy smokes, that's right. I know. Not nuts. Oh, man. Yeah. I didn't think I'd feel that's this good a- at 50. I'm going to be honest with everybody. I Yo. was pretty sure that when I was a kid, 50 was going to be mega geriatric. I wasn't going to be able to move anymore. And I, and I think uh, I feel great. You look great for 50. For everyone, look into the camera. Look at this mug. 50 years old. I wouldn't even believe it. No wrinkles? No. Yeah. No, especially with this lighting. <laughs> That's why we have it, right? right? Exactly. <laughs> oh, right. my gosh. I love it. Well, listen, welcome to our episode today. We have such a flipping treat for everybody. We have this woman, this professor at NYU who's going to come on the show. And what are you hopeful for for this conversation with Marianne today? I, I would love for her to pull us out from the individual journey of transformation and look as a whole from the past to the future, or actually I would say from the past till now, on how we got ourselves as a nation into this place where we've seen this massive rise in overweight individuals, obese individuals, et cetera. Mm. Nobody knows this space better than Professor Marion Nessel. And that's why I'm so excited to have her on because I've followed her for 25 years. Really? Oh, she has been, she's the authority in this space. But I know she's been at NYU for 30 years. Years. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. And she is she is the authority that everybody calls upon because nobody knows this space as far as food politics better than her. Well, she's got a book called Food Politics. She does as a matter of fact it's have a book called politics, Food Politics. Which is yeah. why I'm kind of excited to talk to her today because I love uh you don't know this about me or maybe you do, but every now and again I can look get a little conspiracy theory is mm. you know, a little cynical that yes, way. Yes. And I love to see what her take is on the food industry as a whole. Oh, yeah. Because I think they're probably pretty criminal. She, she, <laughs> I'll bet she will probably agree with you. Um, but I'm curious to see what you're going to extract from this conversation and what you can ask her. Because, um, But again, nobody knows this space better. And I think it's going to empower a lot of us just as we're absorbing this information to help explain the situation that we're all in right now. Okay. So this good. is going to be, yeah, I think this is going to be incredible. All right, good stuff, man. Well, we got a couple of stories to share before she jumps on with us today. You uh, you and the crew just uh, went to the Cardinals game. Yeah. How was it? Well, you know, I mean, it's always a blast going to the game. It's so I don't much go to fun. enough NFL games. You know, the 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 purpose for me, it's it's all about making memories with the kiddos, supporting the the home team and everything. And it was a blast. They, they didn't they didn't win, but that's okay. We still got to go. We made friends with all the people sitting around us. And so really? it was a lot of, yeah, it was a ton of fun. Well, aren't you doing a lot right now with the Cardinals and Move One Million? Yes. Yeah. So what we, is that? So we actually we partnered with the Cardinals and they have a um a program called Milk and Cookies where like every the irony of that the name Milk and Cookies, right? <laughs> so, for, for our interview with Mary, we'll ask, right, we'll ask exactly. her how she feels about that title today. <laughs> but it's it's wonderful what they're doing, and and so um, every Tuesday we go around to different schools in the valley, and uh, so for the entire every season, Tuesday, every Tuesday, oh, sixteen wait, Tuesdays, okay, and we go to different schools and we we present to all these kids. So we'll we'll show up with a couple of the Cardinals players and some of the cheerleaders and Big Red, and then I open the whole thing up with Move One Million. So I, I teach the kids Move One Move One Million. So we get to bring it to all these different schools, and then then the uh, the football player will sit down and read a couple stories to the kids. Nice. And, and actually, last week it was super cool. Nice. Yeah, we had uh, Josh Dobbs, who's the quarterback. Oh, he, okay. He came with us last Tuesday. Is he the backup? He is, but man, he's good. He had a, he had a rough Listen, day. He had nobody a rough day. in the NFL sucks. Oh man, no, no, he's <clears throat> he's incredible. He's a right. phenomenal athlete. He came out firing yesterday, but. Wasn't their day at the end? Uh, <laughs> well, the Bengals are a pretty good team, from hey, what I know. Yeah, 
They they had a great season a couple of years ago, but they're coming back. Okay. It was a rough start for the Bengals, but <laughs> after yesterday, they're like two and three now. So Hey, really quick, and just to, to hit M1M for just a second, if, if schools or other organizations want to take part in this completely free program that you uh, have released over the pandemic, what's the best way for folks to get in touch with Move One Million? It's so easy and and you can register in 30 seconds you can register your classroom so any teachers that are out there listening go to m1m.org fill out the registration it takes 30 seconds and by tomorrow you could actually have the move 1 million broadcast in your classroom teaching the students how to go through the movement and the mindfulness every single day i mean you could literally start it as soon as right now within 30 seconds you can present it to your kids oh yeah so and that's that's what we made it for it's 100% 100% free for everybody. So whoever wants to do it, and, and it's a new broadcast every day, looks kind of like the Brady Bunch where it's yeah, like, no, I love like the nine layout. squares. And we got <laughs> kids and people from all over the world actually moving together to the same music. It's the same movements. So you only, you only need to learn it once. And you got to, and it's a total body warm-up top to bottom. Takes the body through its full range of motion. And then we do like a two and a half minute mindfulness exercise right afterwards. So it's five minutes total. You can, if you're a teacher, just work on your, your lesson plan for the day and we'll move the kids. We'll, we'll, we'll be mindful with them. And so as soon as the five minutes is up, they're ready to learn. So it's, it's a win for everybody. You can't go wrong. Oh, I love it. Yeah. I'm so happy you started it. Man, it's, it's been so fulfilling and just, and seeing the response and actually talking to a lot of these districts that are that have, um, you know, completely adopted, embraced it. You know, the whole state of Hawaii, the the, the Department of Education. You went down like Hawaii. literally two weeks before the fires. Yeah, yeah. In fact, the fire <clears throat> happened, dude, a day after we left. That's when the fire happened. Oh, yeah. But anyway, the kids are still doing it out there, and it's it's so cool to see the impact that it's making. So it's free. Man, love and that. Anyone in education out there, m1m.org. And it'll uh, you bring movement, movement and mindfulness to all your kids. Love it. Yeah. Mary, Mary uh, Professor Marianne's coming up in just a second. Quick story before we get there. I did something this morning that I have never done in my life before. And I can't even tell you how painful it was. <laughs> it wasn't a prostate check, was it? It was not a <laughs> prostate check. I, don't, I did something. I, I don't know why my mind just went there. but Yeah, like I actually think that would feel better than what I did today. <laughs> I was getting out of my car and I stumbled just a little bit as I was getting out of the car and I did something where my, like in swinging, I ended up slamming the door. Oh no. On my fingers. Oh no. I have never slammed my fingers in a door before. Yeah. Is that nail purple right there? Yeah. Oh, well, yeah. Easily, and it's I'm completely blistered underneath here. This little part oh. won't stop bleeding. It's it's like I can't even wait to see what these look like tomorrow. I can barely bend them. <sighs> They're not broken. I know that part, but I mean to tell you that the tears <laughs> that just immediately left my face because of that, oh. and, and it, it happened, and it happened. Sorry, just spit. It happened in a moment, and it was like. Like the door shuts and then instantly your body's like, there's something really wrong here. (laughs) And I look down and my freaking hand is backwards like this, backwards in the door handle. And the door is fully closed. Oh no, dude. The door was shut on my hand and I had to pop it open. Oh yeah. And then that's like almost when it hurt worse. For sure. For sure. Yes. <laughs> I open the door, my hand falls out. And I mean, it was like stars, you know, you start oh, getting bro. dizzy. It's like, that was a pain <laughs> that I don't want anybody to ever experience. Man. When was the last time you actually slammed your fingers in never. the door? I've never done it. Wow, my little, it happened to my little sister when we were kids. Wow. She yeah. got her fingers caught in the door. And I remember it's to like to this day how upset she was about it because oh, how much yeah. it hurt oh yeah and this is back in the freaking 80s when the cars were really heavy yeah 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 i will never do that again that was uh that sucked oh, so i man. don't slam your fingers <laughs> in the car door yeah good lesson to learn i yes. don't even know how i could recreate that I, I honestly don't know how it happened it'll never happen again you sure i'm pro well, i don't know you tell me <laughs> after that that's a lesson you only need to learn once yeah Unless you trip and fall and accidentally slam it again. <laughs> so, this you is, never slammed your fingers into the car? No, but this is why I tell my kids, you know, when they start running around the house slamming doors, 
I'm like, stop slamming the doors because someone's going to break fingers. Because yeah, 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 yeah. that's how I busted up my fingers as a kid was, you know, chasing my sister around. We start slamming doors before you know it. You know, you crush, you, you, you get a finger once. You never do that again. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> well, how do you, how do we know our next guest? I, I'm guessing you are the inspiration for bringing her to the party. Well, yeah. So, so I've had a, a passion for taking people through the journey of transformation, a weight loss transformation for quite some time. But, you know, rewind the clock back 25 years or so when I first started doing this. And I came across Professor Marian Nessel and all the work that she had been doing. Um, on- now, you're talking about the Professor Nessel at NYU. The Professor Marian Nessel at NYU. Exactly. I've heard of this one. I've heard of this one. <laughs> and I, because I was looking at what, just from a systemic level, because I've been working with individuals, but like, how did we get to this place? How did we start to see this massive curve of, um, first it was, you know, people gaining weight and then it was obesity and now we see just it, it turned into this parabolic curve why was that happening and that's when i came across her work and i've learned so much from her over the years because there is no greater authority on like overall food systems and the the food industry and understanding how we got to where we're at now as far as you know, just the average caloric intake now of the of the average American, et cetera. So it's like, and so she's answered a lot of those questions from a from a fifty thousand foot perspective. And so um, that's why I was so excited. You know, as we were putting this whole thing together, I said my dream would be to have <laughs> Professor Marion Nessel. If I could possibly just have her on the show, it'd be amazing. He, he's not joking. We've been talking about you for a few weeks now, <laughs> and when we when we found out you were going to join us here on the I Needed That podcast, we were so psyched. And so first up, welcome to the I Needed that podcast. Are you uh, in New York City right now? I am. I'm in my office at NYU. Man, fantastic. What a cool gig. Can we just pause for just a sec? Like NYU, incredible school, globally respected. What's it like to be a professor at NYU? Well, it was pretty great. I should confess that I'm retired now. I retired in 2017, but was lucky enough to keep my office. And the um, so I'm still hanging around. That was very nice of them. It was very Imagine nice that. of them. She's so good that when she quit, they said, you can still keep coming. It's fine. Well, yeah, it looks really good on them to have her around as well. I'm sure a lot of other universities were like, come on over here. We'll give you a free office. So it's it's nice to to, to see that you stayed with with uh, the alma mater. Yeah, right. Well, actually, no, you're from Berkeley, though. You came from Berkeley, right? Yeah, I did all my training at Berkeley. Okay. I have a, I have an undergraduate, a doctoral degree, and a master's degree from Berkeley. But I've been at <laughs> NYU for more than 30 years. Wow. That's amazing. So, all right. Well, listen, so. let's, let's just jump right in the deep end. We love to waste no time on this podcast and just get down to the dirty uh, bits of what we're here to talk about. Now, on this podcast, a lot of what we spend our time on is transformation. Talking with people about how they've been able to overcome mental physical, spiritual obstacles in order to get themselves back on track, for lack of a better term, to being a more healthy version of themselves. Enter Professor, uh, who is going to hopefully just school us on all of the ways that that has changed over the years. I can't even imagine how many different versions of diet you've witnessed in your lifetime. Oh, they're only, they're really only a few diets and they're just different versions of the same thing. Um, They all do exactly the same thing. They reduce calorie intake, Um, but they try to fool you into not knowing that you're reducing calorie intake, which is why they don't work all that well. Um, So there's high carbohydrate, there's low carbo, low carbohydrate, there's high fat, there's low fat. Um, You know, there's um, don't eat before, um, don't don't eat any meat before six o'clock. There's vegetarian. There's I don't know. There's these days paleo and keto or the big popular ones. But if they're going to do anything for weight loss, they all reduce calories and they all work every single one of them. But only if you follow them. So, so what is the key then to following them in, in your experience and all of your research? What is the key to adherence? Oh, it's very difficult. Um, diets are not much fun. Food is one of life's greatest pleasures. 
and eating less of it is not fun. Um, so people don't like it. And, you know, it's easier for some people to cut out all of the carbohydrates or to cut down on the fat or to do whatever. But the, the there's no real secret about it. You know, just like there's no real secret about healthy eating, which is, you know, Michael Pollan can do it in seven words. Eat food, not too much, mostly plants. Right. And that's pretty much all there is to it. Um and none of this is complicated. It's the doing of it right. that's so hard because food is really an enormous pleasure. And it's not something that people want to give up. And being hungry is a very unpleasant sensation. Um, so, And weight loss is tough and metabolism is set up to conserve body weight. You know, in case you run into periods of famine, the objective is to keep weight on. It's not to take it off. And so the body is set up so that if you lose weight, you don't need as many calories. And that makes it even harder right, so we've to got take these, more weight off. These built-in systems that, that, are, that are constantly going to help us survive. But then now, how do we deal? And this, this, is, this is ultimately where we're going to go. Because then how can we survive in this environment where externally now we have we do have the food industry that over the years they are making more and more of these ultra processed foods hyper palatables and they are absolutely freaking delicious and they're mm -hmm. calorie dense and so and and the the availability the price all of these things i mean our, our environment is surrounded with this and so how can how can the, all the listeners right now how could they navigate something like this and i know this is a massive discussion unto itself but well, from a high level what are your I thoughts i can start by saying that the first thing is to realize that if you're trying to lose weight in the current food environment you're fighting an entire food system on your own mm -hmm. and the amount of food that's sold in the united states i just saw a figure it's 1.4 trillion dollars a year so you as an individual are fighting a $1.4 trillion industry <laughs> by trying to eat less. Eating less is not good for business. Mm. It's really bad for business. And the entire food system is set up to encourage you to eat as much as possible of whatever is available and spend as much money on it as you possibly can. And so if you're trying to fight that on your own, you are fighting advertising, marketing, product placement, um, portion size. That's the big one. I think portion size is a sufficient explanation for why people gained weight in the 1980s. Portions got bigger. Um, the, and then deliciousness. People just love the taste of junk food. We just love it. And there's a reason for that because the companies have figured out what we find most irresistible and have created these products to be absolutely irresistibly delicious. You know, there was that uh, Frito-Lay commercial years and years ago where Bert Lahr <laughs> held up a potato chip and said, bet you can't eat just one. I remember that's the point. Of course. Yeah. They made their whole slogan was on it, right? Yeah. With Pringles, right? Mm -hmm. Bet you can't eat just one. It was yeah. like, it was like. Well, it wasn't a problem then. It's a problem now. It's a problem now. Um, and it's a problem now because all foods are doing that. Yeah. And so if you're in a food environment in which there's fabulous food around all the time, it doesn't cost much, all those things you just mentioned. Um it's impossible not to eat it. And uh, humans, I think humans must be hardwired to eat what's in front of us, never mind what our parents told us. If we, you know, the example that I like to use is I remember in the 1980s when the big muffins came in. Mm -hmm. Muffins used to be what are now called mini muffins. Mm -hmm. And they went into the big things that you buy in all stores now. And they went from 200 to six or 800 calories. And if you've got an 800 calorie muffin in front of you, you're going to eat all of it. Absolutely. If you've got a 200 calorie muffin in front of you, you might eat too. Yeah. Do you, do you, do you remember the, stop. do you remember the book mindless eating? 
Yeah. Yes. And it, it talks all about this. It's food availability. It's what, what's in your immediate environment. And then they did a whole uh, experiment with popcorn cups. And they would like, give someone, a, you know, they would give somebody an extra large tub and somebody a little cup of popcorn. Everybody would finish the popcorn, but the, the people with the small cup, they said, oh, I'm totally satisfied. And then the people with the, the big tub, they would eat. And then until they felt that they were satisfied and they actually ended up eating the entire thing. And so it's, or they or they ate a lot more yes than or a lot more than what was in the the smaller one. So portion size is an enormous trigger of overeating. And now that everybody is used to large portions, it's really hard to go back. Yes. If you go into a restaurant and you're served a meal that's the size of a meal that you would have been served say in the 1950s or 60s, you think the restaurant was trying to cheat you. <laughs> Really? And so am I hearing you two correctly that in a lot of ways, the the obstacles that we need to overcome with regards to food is like we have to start to unwire some messaging that's been fed to us. Like we've, we've essentially been programmed into thinking a certain way about food. And that's the hard part is that we need to unwire ourselves a little bit and think about food differently. Are there some common messages that you in your professional life have seen that are consistent, that are not good messages? Well, the consistent messages have been right from the beginning, but the messages don't do any good unless the environment supports them. So diet, you know, federal dietary guidelines, for example, have said the same thing since 1980. You know, don't eat too much sugar, fat, or saturated fat or salt. Don't overdo on calories. Uh, eat, eat your veggies. Um, I mean, they still say the same things. They don't, they don't ever change. It's the doing of it. Everybody knows this. But there's a big gap between what you know and what you can actually do, given the particular situa- situation that you're in. And if everybody around you is eating enormous amounts of food, and ordering enormous amounts of food, you're going to do that too, yeah, because that's what you're used to. And you don't, you don't. I mean, I, the size of pizza has gotten enormous. Um, the size of you know, supersizing, all of that kind of thing, um, is a sufficient explanation for why people are eating more calories than they used to. But to reverse that is extremely difficult, and it's asking a lot of individuals to be able to do that on their own. Sure. That's asking a lot. Yes. Could we rewind the clock a little bit? And, and something that you do so beautifully, and I learned it from you, is could you explain how we as a nation got into this predicament in the first place? Not, I mean, not a predicament, but why we are struggling with obesity now. And, and you do it so beautifully walking through the timeline of, you know, government subsidized crops. And now we've got all this food to sell. So what do we need to do? Bring in the food industry and they need to go sell this stuff. Could you explain that? Because nobody, no, no, nobody does it better than you. I'm so sorry. I didn't even mean to step. This is, you just, this is, you just did a very good job of it. That's exactly what happened. Well, I, learned, out, I learned from the best. Left that one piece. But, but that's exactly what happened in the 1970s. The government encouraged farmers to grow as much food as they possibly could, and they did. They're really good at that, and because subsidies go to the largest producers, and the more you produce, the more money you get. So um, the number of calories in the food supply increased from about 3,000 calories a day per capita, men, women, little tiny babies, 3,000 calories a day. There was a lot of food available in 1980. By 2000, it had gone up to 4,000 calories a day where it has stayed. So if you look at the population average, how many calories does the population need on average? It's roughly 2,000 calories a day, which means twice as much food is available as the country needs. So this is a big problem for the food industry. If they want to sell food in an environment in which there's twice as much food available, they have to get people to substitute, eat their foods instead of somebody else's, or to eat more in general. So that's point one. They were very good at getting people to eat more in general. Um, 
and uh, but but let me give the uh, the one the one piece you left out had to do with the um, the way Wall Street eval- evaluated corporations in 1981. Jack Welch, who was the head of General Electric, gave a very famous speech in which he adopted Milton Friedman's statement that the only purpose of a corporation was to make money for stockholders, the sole purpose. And he applied that. He talked about that in that speech in 1981, and everybody bought it. Wall Street bought it. So it then became an issue of not only did companies have to make a profit, and I want to be very clear, I'm not against profit, um, but they had to grow their profits, And they had to report growth to Wall Street every 90 days. So for a lot of companies, this was a disaster. People can only buy so much. For food companies, it was a terrible disaster because people can only eat so much. And so in order to deal with corporate growth, food corporations had to get people to spend more money on their products. And they did that by making larger portions because everybody loves them. And the cost of food was cheap because there was so much of it. Um, So they could easily make larger portions and entice people to buy more that way. They put food where food had never been before. And I remember when I came to NYU in 1988, there were signs all over the library saying, if you bring a food or a drink into this library, you are expelled from this university. (laughs) Right, right. You are history. Now there are cafes in the library and vending machines all over it. It used to be that you couldn't bring a cup of coffee into a bookstore. Now there are cafes in bookstores. It used to be you could never bring a food into a clothing store because they were afraid you'd spill something on the clothes. Now there are, you know, drinks are passed around. There are candy bars at the cash register. There's food everywhere absolutely everywhere. And there was an enormous effort made to try to promote snacking as a health practice. Uh, There was research that came out sponsored by the food companies that showed that um, if you wanted to maintain weight, it was better to eat eight small meals a day than three big ones. Um, And when in fact, the more times a day you eat, the more calories you take in. I mean, there were several rules like that. Um, So that changed society. And as a result, people started eating more calories. And between 1980 and 2000, um, probably the number of calories that people were actually eating, not what was available, a thousand more were available. People were probably eating three or four hundred more. That's enough to account for the 10 to 20 pound weight gain that occurred during that period. And we now have very, very good clinical research demonstrating that ultra-processed products are so good that people eat more calories from them without realizing it. Um, So there are two sufficient explanations. Junk food, which makes people eat more, and larger portions, which makes people eat more, and snacking, which makes people eat more. And food companies get most of their money from snacks. Yes. As she was talking, I'm thinking about, think about your average uh, gas station now. Oh, yeah. Like you go in, it's not a gas station anymore. It's a pizza shop. It's a hot dog shop. It's a brat shop. It's a coffee shop. It's a chip shop. It's a donut shop. Like it's insane to me. And what you're saying, I mean, it's. That's that's what I was thinking about as she was explaining. I'm going, oh, my goodness, think about, and your analogy was perfect, right? Like, yes, now they literally are passing out drinks while you shop. Now yeah. you're in a bookstore, and there is a coffee shop with all those beautiful muffins you were talking about earlier, right? It's just, it, it, but the problem, at least from my vantage point, is it, none of it's healthy. Right. It seems to all be crap that's sitting inside these places. Oh, uh, yeah, but we love it. It is, it's funny. I don't love it. I don't love the way I feel when I eat it. Ah, <laughs> That's the different thing. But, I lo- but, but we love the taste. I mean, hyper palatable is like, you know, chips and cookies and cake. Okay, yeah, and yeah. All this stuff. They taste so good going down, but you feel terrible when you eat it. That's the way. But how do you stop the train? Because this train's <laughs> yeah. now, now, 
uh, Professor you, Nessel. You make sure you don't have those things in the house. That's it. Okay. Well, okay. Now we're getting somewhere. I, I like this. So, so now we talked about it from a systemic level. How do we? How do we share this message? What is the message for the individual of like? Okay, how can we start to slow this momentum? This you know momentum with well, the food I think industry. The first thing is to understand that you are the target of um, an enterprise that's only interested in profit. It's not interested in your in your health. You know, food companies are not social service agencies, and they're not public health agencies. Mm. They're selling a product. And they've got stockholders who want them to sell more and more and more of it every quarter and report growth to Wall Street every quarter, which is impossible. Mm. You know, you can't, all food companies cannot grow. It's just not possible. So they're competing with each other in ferocious ways. And you're caught, and you as an individual are caught in the middle. So the first thing is to understand the politics of it. That makes it a little easier to fight it off. But... It's not easy because food is, surrounds us. It surrounds us in large portions, and it's great. And as one, as one of my friends put it, you know, when you're eating a salad, you've had enough, you've had enough. Oreo cookies, <laughs> not a chance. Right. You know? Yeah, you, um, they hijack these, our satiety systems, right? It's absolutely. Like you, you eat absolutely. them, you don't feel full. The sugar is going to trigger you to want to eat more. And, of course, the combination of the sugar and the fat and the salt and everything is just, oh, you just keep going, can, even beyond full. Can I ask the professor? You've explained it before, but I just want to hear her version of it. What does it mean to hijack your satiety signals? Well, you just don't realize how much you're eating. And this has been shown in this controlled clinical trial that was done at NIH, was the people who were fed hyperpalatable, ultra-processed foods had no idea that they were eating 500 calories a day more than they were when they were fed a diet that wasn't hyperpalatable. Even though they liked the other diet, too, they couldn't tell the difference between the diets. They had no idea that they were eating more calories. Isn't that something? It was a, so that's a hijack. Yeah. It's not conscious. They weren't trying to eat more. They had no idea they were eating more. It was a big shock to everybody. Wow. Especially the investigator who never expected to get that result. Um, so that's what you're up against. And, you know, you don't want to overeat on ultra-processed foods. Don't buy them. Mm. Don't have them in the house. Um, You know, the first thing that I advise people if they're concerned about weight, the first thing you do is to get rid of the sugar-sweetened beverages. Mm. Because talk about hijacking. Those things have calories, and you have no idea how many. I mean, we did a... We did a little study at NYU, at NYU where uh, the person or the woman who was teaching our uh, undergraduate beginning class in nutrition gave the students a quiz: um, how many calories are in an eight-ounce soda, and how many calories are in a two-liter soda. And the we didn't expect them, and or, or actually she didn't even say two liter. She said sixty four ounce soda. So we didn't expect people to know how many calories were in an eight ounce soft drink necessarily, but we certainly expected them to be able to multiply by eight. But in fact, the average multiplier came back three that they said that there were 300 calories in a 64-ounce soda. So I said, you got to go back and ask the students where they got that number from. And the students said, it's impossible for a soda to have 800 calories. Wow. It's just not possible. And, it's, and it is possible, and it's very real, I'm right? afraid so. It's, it's very real. In fact, Unfortunately, yeah, a lot of Americans are consuming, I mean, the big gulp, right? I mean, it's, it's just a regular thing. And it's, it's not uncommon to consume 64 ounces of soda a day for a lot of people. So um, Professor Nessel, one of my closest friends, I met him when he was uh, 630 pounds. We actually lived together for two years and he would drink three gallons of Coca-Cola a day when we first met. He drank three gallons of it a day. And I switched, him, I switched him over to Diet Coke and, and together over two years, he lost over 400 pounds. 
So yeah, I mean, I've, I've I've heard stories when I wrote my book Soda Politics, which I did not write as a diet manual. I wrote it as an advocacy manual. This is how you get sodas out of schools, you know, out of workplaces and so forth, and get kids to stop drinking them. Um, I got letters from people saying, I read your book, I stopped drinking sodas, I lost 10 pounds. I read your book, I stopped drinking sodas, I got lost 20 pounds. The record was 80. Wow for wow. readers of that book. And that was the only change they made. Right. right. Because you don't realize that those ca- those calories go down really easily and you just don't realize you're eating them. So, number 1, get rid of the sugar-sweetened beverages and I'm not going to recommend <clears throat> the diet beverages because there're problems about those too, but the um, you know, learn how to like water or put a little fruit juice, not a lot of fruit juice in if you need it to be a little sweetened, you know, and just train your palate to like less sweetness. Right. It takes a while, but it can be done. Absolutely. Yeah. We've talked no, about it on the is- podcast before. You said it takes about 10 days to shift the palate. It does. And, and the, the brain still remembers the flavor, but yeah, your, your taste buds, they completely, they regenerate extremely fast. We're talking about two weeks. And so if you go without a certain food for like two weeks and you taste it again, it tastes a little bit different. Right, and tastes so, really sweet. It does. It does. If you if you yeah. avoid sugar for two weeks and then you consume it, it tastes sweeter than you remember it. Same thing and, with fatty and foods. And not as good. And not as good as you remember it either. Exactly. <laughs> okay. Like, so what? Aside of if if the sugary beverages are top on the tier, they're they're number one. I'm so fascinated and curious. What's two? What's three? What's four? Like oh, what the are the top is, five worst? The rest of it is portion size. It is okay. okay. Yeah, I mean, the thing about sugar-sweetened beverages is they have no nutritional value beyond calories. And so they're a really easy target. Mm. Uh, You know, they're just throwing calories on top of everything else you're eating, and they're not the kind of calories that are going to do you any good. So they're really easy. Everything else is more complicated. Um, You know, if you like junk food, just don't have it in large amounts. You know, figure out a way to apportion it so that you're not eating a lot of it at any one time. If you can't stop eating it, don't have it in the house. I like that. So, so Professor Nessel, we know the answer kind of to this, but I'm curious as to what your response would be. So if, if every American removed sugary liquids and reduced their portion sizes, what would we see across 330 million of us? What would we see? Well, it would depend on how many portion sizes they reduced. Sure, fair enough. You know, I mean, fair it's enough. very difficult to talk about one food in the um, and not talk about everything else that people are eating. And we have a situation in the United States now where seventy percent of of American adults are overweight or obese by seventy or whatever the standard criteria are. That makes it normal. That's the majority, the great majority. Of Americans are overweight uh, to one extent or another. And that has normalized overweight in a way that it never was before. Very, very difficult to reverse that. I'm not sure how it can be done. Is there hope? One by one, I think. So so that would be it. Would you say that perhaps the solution would be to somehow create an influence inside the American home? Is that where it starts? Well, it's one place, and schools are another. Mm. You know, sure. I mean, an, an astonishing proportion of children are overweight now, and you know, I always think of class pictures of my classes and my kids' classes, and we were all skinny. My kids were; everybody in their class was skinny. Now the kids are all heavier, um, and you know, to do something about that means changing diet in a pretty profound way. And that's very difficult for people to do. Once you get used to a diet and you like it, it's pretty tough to change it. It is. You know? So would you say that our hope for, for the health of, the few, for, of, of this nation predominantly lies in the next generation? And so is that where well, our focus would, should really be? It would have to. And that means um, serving healthy foods in schools because um, some kids eat most of their calories in school during mm. the day. And, and it's been very, very difficult to 
develop a school nutrition policy that that works. It works in some places, but not others. Um, and you know, some people are for it, and some people are not. Like everything else in our society, diet divides people. Mm. As far as far as the influence on the schools, is that another thing? Is it under the influence of the food industry? Or? Oh, sure. Okay. Okay. Oh, absolutely. They get to sell to a captive audience. Sure. Even if they're making products that meet Department of Agriculture's nutrition standards, they've got a brand on them. And when kids leave the school, they just know the brand. Mm. They don't know that the school food is formulated in a different way. And any attempt to try to control what is sold in schools is immediately fought sure. by food companies that sell products to schools. Right. So, you, you know, as I said, if you are trying to eat healthfully, trying to feed your kids healthfully, you are fighting an entire food system on your own. That's very hard to do. I feel compelled to uh, play the conspiracy theorist here for just a second, especially with you, especially with you on the on the podcast, because I'm so curious about this. Right. So we can all probably agree that there's more money to be made on sick people than healthy people. Right. Sure. And so the conspiracy theory out there. Right. Is why would we fix this? There's too much money to be made with all of the diabetes medication, all of the the, the hospital visits that we're going to need all, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, think of the clothing industry. Right. We're gaining and losing weight. So we're always buying clothes again. Like to, to me, there's so much money to be made on this roller coaster of food that I'm not sure we can even get to a place where we can start to right the ship until we understand or learn that there's a lot of money to be made in being healthy. We just kind of have to reframe how we think about things. So give give me your opinion on on that. Well, when I'm at my most cynical... Yes. (laughs) Here we go. Let's go. I ask the question, what industry would benefit if people ate more healthfully? And let me tell you, it's a very small list, Mm. Um, and it comes down to health maintenance organizations that are not-for-profit, of which there are very few in the United States. So Kaiser Permanente officials in California once told me that if they could get everybody eating more healthfully, they could reduce the so much of their expenditure was on a small percentage of their client base. And that if they could just reduce the size of their very sick client base, they would have lots of money to pay doctors better and nurses better and orderlies better and build better hospitals and do all those things. Um, And so they have a lot of initiatives to try to make their patient population healthier. But I can't think of any other. And they're a not-for-profit organization. It's hard to think of any for-profit organization. Well, that, that's, that, pro- that's probably why they told you the truth, because they're not for profit. <laughs> they're, they're not. They got nothing to make. They're like, you know, hey. everybody else benefits by because of the way our healthcare system is, such as it is, is set up. Mm. <clears throat> that everybody benefits from people being sick, um, except for individuals themselves. And so, once again, you're not only fighting. A food system on your own, you're fighting an insurance system, a diet industry system, a diet drug system. Oh, we've got all these drugs now. They cost a fortune. And the um, and a system, the insurance system benefits. I mean, it just goes on and on and on and on. Can I ask one more question really quick? Yeah, Do we, is this yeah. problem this big in other countries or are there places in the world that are getting this more right? Oh, sure. Really? Okay. No, the countries in Europe that are that have social values as part of their um, reason for being and have governments that think that it's really important to keep their population healthy have uh, do better at it than we do, although not without problems. Nobody is without problems. Sure, sure. Um, <clears throat> but they do it better than we do, I think. How so? Well, they have a health care system for one thing. Okay, okay. Um, you know, they have an education system that's paid for. Um, <clears throat> they have more restrictions on what food companies can do. Mm. And it's interesting to me that countries in Latin America are fighting hard on this because they're extremely worried 
that large segments of their population are going to have type 2 diabetes. Type 2 diabetes is not a disease you want to have. Mm-hmm. You know, it results in blindness. It results in foot amputations. It, resu- it results in all kinds of really awful problems. And <clears throat> it's, it is very highly correlated with being overweight. And it's not that overweight, every o- overweight person ha- gets type 2 diabetes. But if you look at the population of people with type 2 diabetes, the vast majority of them are overweight. So that tells you that if you could prevent overweight, you would be preventing a great deal of type 2 diabetes. And the, the diseases for which overweight and diabetes are risk factors like heart disease and so forth. Um, So, you know, if we had a sensible health care system that was based on keeping people healthy, then there would be an enormous effort put into trying to create healthier environments. So it would be easier for people to eat better and be more active. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Appreciate that. Yes. Now you know why I wanted you on the I show. Know. Well, it's just so fun to talk about this stuff because at the end of the day, I just think that there was so, I don't even think I know because I'll just use myself as an example. When I learn about like, hey, you're being controlled by this message or hey, you're being controlled by that message and mm-hmm. the information that you've been presented isn't, is a little bit one-sided, buddy, and there's a whole, a whole other story to this thing. Uh, that it makes it really easy for me to make a decision like, okay, no more sodas in the house. Okay, no more chips in the house. Like, I get it. And, and I'm hoping that other people have had that light bulb turned on while they're listening to this podcast. It's like, okay, listen, we're telling you right now, these food companies are in charge. She said it's a $1.6, $1.4 trillion industry. They're, yeah, that includes, that includes restaurants and alcohol. Yeah. They're in control. Yes. They're in control. Like you said, we're all marching uphill on this battle. And so what, I just think there's a lot of power in knowing that because then you go, oh, I'm gonna be, I'll show them I won't buy Coke. Okay. Well, yeah. <laughs> Good. And you know what? That's how we can do something about it. Yes. You control your life and your family's life. You control the food that's coming in through that door. And so this is what we can do. Like all of our listeners, this is what they can do to do something about it. Because I know a lot of them are thinking, this is my fault. This is my fault. And while they might have chosen those foods, there's a reason why you were manipulated by the system. So if you understand that, I, that's why it was so important to have Professor yes. Nessel on so she could say, this is all part of a bigger plan. You, we were all a part of the machine and we didn't even know it. And so this is what I want everybody to realize because now once we know it, we can do something about it. There it is. Yeah. Professor Nessel, you're amazing. I can't thank you enough for being on with us. My pleasure. Yeah, this has just been a great conversation. And uh, I, I, I feel like I could ask a thousand more questions. Is there anything that you want to know? Because there's the one question that I do have kind of builds on what you just said, which is, okay, let's just say that I'm listening to this podcast right now. And I'm one of those families that's made some not so great choices in terms of what I'm bringing into the house. And we hear this a lot. We see this right. a lot. People are like, well... I want to switch it up, but my kids, I'll have anarchy in the house. Like, I can't, I can't switch out all the snacks or my kids are going to leave me. Uh, you know, and then and people, they freak out about those types of things. But what kind of information could you share with, with them that would be useful uh, to, to, to that conversation? It's time to teach your kids how the system works. There it is. I love it. Tell them. Be honest, be <laughs> that, honest with be them. Honest. That's yeah. a- Kids catch on fast. I'm, one of the chapters in my book, Soda Politics, is about how to teach your kids about sodas and sh- the, the amount of sugar that they Watch have um, and make a game out of it. You know, in Latin American countries, they're putting warning labels on ultra-processed foods. And the warning labels are big black stickers, and they're so obvious that kids can read them and people who are who can't read know what they are. And so what they've done is they've gotten kids to say, don't buy that. Mm. Don't buy that. And the, um, in some of the countries, the rules are that if the product's nutrient composition qualifies for a warning label, they can't put cartoons on the package. Wow. I love that. And and they cannot market to children because one of the things, oh, I'll tell you my marketing to children's story. I once went to a meeting at the White House when Michelle Obama was working on her Let's Move campaign. Mm -hmm. And it was a meeting on food marketing to children. 
And after the speeches, we broke up into small groups and there were food company executives there. And one of them said, you know, I, I don't like marketing to children. I wish we didn't have to do us. I wish we could just stop. Um, but he said, our stockholders won't let us. Wow. And there it was. There it is. That, that was it. He there it was. Back to that 1940s speech. Yeah. That's right. So, you know, that's what you're up against. And kids are a terrific target for food marketing because they don't know the difference between advertising and content. Right. And the entire purpose of marketing to children is to get the kids to pester their parents to buy stuff. Um, and kids are really good at that. And people don't want to fight their kids around food right. issues. I, think, I understand that. I had kids. I remember what it was like. Yeah, sure. it's tough. And then you you have a customer for the next eighty years until they get sick and die. That's right. Yeah. There you go. Yeah. Wow. You get you get a kid choosing a brand. That kid has that brand for life forever. That kid is branded. Yeah, for sure. All right. Wow. Well, listen, we're going to wrap up with the professor here, but we do have one final question that we want to ask you, and it's all about promises. Uh, it's mm. something that's really strong on our podcast is this idea of keeping promises to yourself. And so I'll let you kind of formalize the question to her, but I just want to lob that up. Yeah, oh, I'm worried about this one. No, I'll make it really easy on you. Um, and the, the question is, and it's very, very simple, but what does keeping promises to yourself mean to you? Which makes you feel better. How simple is that sleep, answer? Helps, it does. helps you sleep at night. There you go. Those are good. Thi- those are good things. I couldn't have put it any better. Yeah, it's so simple, right? Like, yes. It's not complicated. Keeping promises allows you to sleep at night. Yes. And how many Americans are not keeping promises and up all night? Absolutely. Yeah, she's on. Yeah. Oh my goodness, I love this conversation. Thank you so much, <laughs> Professor Nessel, for being on with us today. Thank you. Happy to be here. All right, you have a great day. We appreciate your time. Okay, thank you very much. Hanging out in her NYU office, uh, Professor Marion Nessel. Dude. That was a really cool conversation. I was so excited for the three of us to just jive like that. Yeah. That was fun, man. I'm so so glad that she agreed to come on the show because it took, I mean, did you not have a different perspective of this epidemic that we're in right now. And by the way, I, I hope so many of you listening have so much more empathy and compassion for the situation that you're in. I'm not saying it's not like, Oh, here we all can all, we can all play the victim card, but at the same time we were all part and we all are now a part of that bigger machine. And they have been marketing to us for years and to your parents, they marketed to your parents first. And they got all of us hooked. And so just if you understand it from that level, now we have the power to do something about it. Well, and I was thinking while she was talking, I want to bring it up, but I didn't want to derail us. But And marketing's only getting smarter. Mm. We're seeing more and more legit psychology being yeah. put into marketing. And so they're getting it right. Like they know how this noodle works. Oh, yeah. And they're working the noodle, man, like in a very big way. Oh, they got some of the smartest people in the world that are using gaming to even get us hooked on food brands, which is, and it's all about that release of dopamine and the surprises here and there. And then they got the cartoons and they got, I mean, just the, they are some of the the smartest people in the world are strategizing how to make the most money off of us at our expense, at the expense of our health and our kids' health. So this is, this was such a huge conversation and I hope you guys are just as fired up as I am. And and I know you are now about it. I mean, I'm just buzzing inside. Yes. I mean, but, but, for you, doesn't it upset you just a little bit just to think, man, I was just, I was, I was a pawn in the game of a, of a bigger industry that was just focused on making money off my demise and the demise of my family. You know, like, yeah, yeah, I don't know yes, about you, but it, this, yes, it pisses and, me off. Yes. And I think we, we all kind of know that in the back of our heads, sure. but we push through because they make it so, like I was saying, you can go to the gas station now, the gas station, and you can li- you can have anything you want. Yeah. I don't know about you, but growing up for me, going to the gas station, you got gas, dad bought cigarettes, and maybe there was some candy. Yeah. But there was not like, 
hot dogs, pizza. I mean, you're lucky if you can find one that's got salads, yeah. coffee shops, and all this other stuff. Yeah. And what's nuts to me, it was you guys said that 64-ounce mega drink, 800 calories. And if I'm supposed to be having 2,000 calories a day, right. I'm going to shoot my load on a soda? <laughs> right, exactly. It's insane. And it doesn't, no bit of that fills you up. Not not an ounce of that makes you feel full. In fact, it does the opposite. You know, sugar actually, sugar increases cravings two different ways. Number one, through the flavor, then you actually get that release in the, in the, in the mind or in the brain, you get that dopamine release. But then also when it hits the gut, when sugar goes into your gut, it sends a second release. So if you were to actually straight inject sugar into your stomach without even tasting it, it would send another signal to consume more to your brain. You would actually all of a sudden start craving sugar without even tasting it. Sugar works on the brain in two different ways, in two different pathways. So that's so helpful for you because if you're going to go have a brownie tonight and you want to have half a brownie, congratulations. Just know that the body's going to want to eat the whole thing and you have to be smarter than your brain to say, okay, I know that's coming. I'm not going to do the thing. Right. And I think that is, it's tough at first but like I'm somebody, I don't eat a lot of sweets mm. and I haven't for years. Mm-hmm. Every now and again, I have something and I, I just honestly don't love the way that it tastes anymore. That's, it's crazy. That, that's a, that's a blessing right there, brother. It might that's be a blessing, sure. but it wasn't easy at first. I had to kind of get, I had to get used to it. For sure. Well, you had to almost wean yourself off of it. Yeah. Right? Well, the, my thing is I read a book called Sugar Crush. Mm like six, eight years ago. Yeah. And it just flipped the whole damn thing on its, oh. on its head for me. Yeah. And I know she's got a book on sugar too. So, uh, you know, people should check it out. But yeah, when you realize that the devil is really sugar. Oh yeah. <laughs> it's, well, it is out of control how oh, bad man. sugar is for us. Yeah, sugar. And then, I mean, obviously some of these, a lot of these foods that are super high in fat, super high in sodium and, and all this other stuff, man. And the combination of all of them, that's what really gets you. It's the combo of all of them. Yeah, and, and, and Professor Nestle, she's got multiple books. You know, she's got food politics, soda politics, and I think a couple more. Mm. I mean, she's, she's been around for a long time, and she's schooling a lot of people for all the right reasons. Yeah. So she yeah. didn't feel like the kind of guest that I wanted to put through name that tune. And would you rather? <laughs> so we, we sort of passed on that with her. Didn't you get the impression? Like I was like, she's a little bit too polished for us to be throwing a name that tune. You know, it's so funny. I was ready to go for it. In fact, I actually had my, my uh, song all queued up. Cue it for me. I want to hear it. What okay, was it going to be? And then I'll, I'll play the one that I was going to use for her. And I, I'm not sure that she was going to get it. My song is too perfect. Okay. <laughs> it won't connect though. Hold on. Oh, because is I, I it? Because cause I'm on. All right. Stand by one it's second. All, all I, right. My Wait, song. While we're doing this, I want to remind everybody we're just a couple of weeks away from our uh, big run. This is the 10K with Lululemon. It's the Lululemon 10K tour. Uh, we are so excited to be running this alongside of you. I have four friends that are going to join the I Needed That podcast team. They oh, signed up this amazing. week. And uh, yeah, there's going to be a lot of really uh, great people. Is it showing up? You know what? It made me forget it really quick. Oh, yeah, no sweat. Oh, then we we have to just do it again. No problem. There we go. I like that everybody gets to be behind the scenes here on all this stuff. Oh, yeah. Yeah. This is fun. You guys are going to die when you hear the song that I I had queued up for uh, Professor Nestle. All right. (laughs) Hit me with the opening lyric. Name that tune works like this. You get the first three seconds of the song, and then you got to give us title and artist. Okay, are we ready? We are ready. Okay. I think she would have gotten it. <laughs> I don't know. It's like she could have totally surprised us. Yeah. Well, and she's she's straight out of New York, and so you can you can definitely hear what. Well, I don't know if she's originally from there, but she's been there for 30 years. But no, long enough, she is New York. Oh, oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> and so she's like, that, that could have gone one of two ways. Who knows? But I was hoping she would at least appreciate the song choice. I did. Yeah. yeah. All right, here's, That's all that matters. Here's your song choice. <laughs> Name that tune, Chris Powell. Oh, I'm going to make it. Oh, that, this is Fall Out Boy. This is Fall Out yes, Boy. Yes. Um, Oh, oh boy! Oh no! Oh, oh boy! Drop the ball on this one. At least I got the artist. Follow, boy. Yes. Thanks, Thanks for, for the, the memories. memories. Yes. 
a good song. Oh, that's a good song. That's a really good song. Well, uh, listen, everybody, thank you so much for spending a little bit of time with us on the I Needed That podcast today. Don't forget, please sign up and run the Lululemon 10K tour with us. If you cannot do it in person, there's a virtual option that makes a donation to NAMI, which is a great organization trying to do what they can in terms of mental health and mental illness for people. And it's just so clear to me that that's one of the... You talk about the food industry and that being an uphill battle. The mental health space is almost identical it is we are running uphill right now with that thing and they are intertwined yes. believe it or not i mean the food that we put in our body that's how we make all of our neurotransmitters etc so like remember our, our food is directly related to not just our physical health but also our mental health so very very important okay um but yeah for all the deets on the lululemon 10k lululemon the number 10k tour.com Get all the information you need. If you are in Arizona or traveling to Arizona, join us. And if not, like Matthew was saying, there's a whole virtual component there. So you can get all the deets on the website. I bought running shoes yesterday. Oh, but you know, it's so funny. I need to get some. What'd you get? I went to, I'm a cheap best, uh, bastard. <laughs> so I, I always I shop at the outlet mall because there's right. an outlet mall right down the street from us. <laughs> so do so I. I went to the Adidas uh, outlet mall and I told my son, I said, I want the best cheapest running shoes that you can find. Don't care what color they are. Yeah. Nothing. Doesn't matter. And so I got some mint green. Uh, <laughs> what, what do you, what do you call the Adidas uh, ones that everybody loves? The Yeezys? No, not the <laughs> no, Yeezys, okay. but it's their, it's their technology. Oh, Anyways, I know what you're talking their, about. It's their soft stuff. It's like walking on clouds. Oh, oh, dude, those are so like those running shoes, like the Hoka's or the Ultras yeah. or all those. Those are Ultra so. Boost. That's what it oh, is. Ultra man, Boost. Those are great. I um. But here's the thing: you're totally gonna fit in because like having the most colorful shoes is totally a thing in the running world. Yeah, that's what I, I thought. Don't, I don't know if you've noticed that, but yeah, they've always got the craziest looking shoes. Well, I like to wear, and I'm sure you've noticed this because I come here. I like to wear interesting shoes, so mm-hmm. uh, I'm, I'm all I'm all about that. I have blue linen shoes on today for crying out loud. They look good. They look comfy. Shoes. They are the most comfortable shoes I you, own. You know I love those white Nikes. It's I like know. Those, I thought yeah, about those, it the other day. I'm gonna, one day I'm going to surprise you with a pair. Oh, do they even make them anymore? I, I don't know. I would buy them in a heartbeat. But would you? Yeah, they're so sick. I love them. He's got the coolest, <laughs> coolest white Nikes. They're like a knit. Like, yes. What, what are they? I don't even know to describe it. No idea. Outlet mall purchase. Nike with this outlet. music. Let's talk about the Nikes. <laughs> go ahead. Hey, bring bring your voice down low. Just do it. Just woven together. Just go out and spend $400 on a pair of shoes. <laughs> Just do it. If they're $400, I'll pass. Yeah, me too, man. <laughs> yeah. Not a chance, huh? All right, next uh, week, we are back with another transformation story. We hope that you guys enjoyed uh, this mega informational podcast today. Man. I was I was having a fanboy moment there for a while just because I can't believe I was talking to Professor Marion Nessel and she she didn't disappoint that's for sure. Yeah, she's yeah. awesome. All she right, guys, is. listen, you're being sold. The man is trying to get you. Get him back. Yep, and only you can do something about it. Protect yourself, protect your family, and uh, little things. Honestly, you know what? That that's that's what was that was my takeaway. Remove the soda from lunch. Ultimately, remove all those all those sugary sodas and reduce your portion sizes. And you know, it's those baby steps will lead to lifelong change. Love it, man. See everybody next week on the I Needed That podcast. Please tell a friend. Please leave a review. Please give us a five star rating. We'll take it, and it only helps us get bigger and better. Thank you, guys. Hey, bud. Love you, brother. I love you too, man. Have a great week.